0: 10,
1: 9,
2: 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1 Live from London, this is the Sunday Morning Breakfast Show with Sobia Iqbal on Teachers Talk Radio.
3: Good morning. You're listening to Sobia Stella Sunday. It's Sunday, the 7th of May. We have the best conversations coming your way. We're discussing what it's like to work in different cares, prayers, CPD in schools, diversity in leadership, and how to survive a dead-end job if you're not making any progress. We're also discussing how leaders can support staff who feel like this. It's another thrilling morning. Prepare for takeoff.
2: Live from London. This is the Sunday Morning Breakfast Show with Sobia Iqbal on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live on the Podbean app or desktop player. Just head over to www.podbean.com slash lsw slash ttradio or search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TTRadio.
3: I've got two fabulous guests today. We've got Aaron Singh Sohi, who's an assistant head, and we've also got Helen Tara, who's a leadership consent consultant who'll be coming in today. We're gonna to come back to them after this. morning, everyone. Um, I've got a bit of a sore throat, but I'm still running the show. Um, It's exciting because I've got two fabulous people on today. So first up is Aaron. Aaron, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm
1: great. Thank you for having me, Sobia. It's great to be here.
3: Brilliant. Can you introduce introduce yourself to listeners, please, this morning?
1: Yep, absolutely. So um, I'm, as you mentioned, an assistant principal. I've been teaching for 10 years. Before that, um, I had a career. Or careers in marketing and sales, um, and I live in I live in West London. I guess that's it, really.
3: And how long can you just repeat? How long have you been teaching for?
1: I've been teaching for around ten years.
3: Okay. And um, what was life like before teaching? Because you didn't just come into teaching straight away. You had another career, didn't you?
1: I did. That's right. So I imagine, like a lot of people, I like graduated. Um, I did a degree in English. Um, I graduated and didn't quite know where I was going with that. I bumbled around for a a year or two, if I'm honest, kind of, you know, floating from different jobs, not really knowing where I was going, what I was going to do with my life. Um, Before I got, uh, I kind of fell into a role in marketing um, for a massive company, you know, really globally large company. Um, And I I originally got the job through working in their call center. And they thought, actually, this guy's got a bit about him. So they gave me a position in marketing. Um, I was an assistant product manager, then became a product manager, um, and they offered me a course in uh, to, to do my uh, a marketing qualification. And I was like, actually, you know, I, I was all right at the job, um, but I wasn't sure that that's what I wanted to do with my life. So when they kind of offered me that progression, it forced me to rethink. And as you know, as as much as I was able to do the job, it wasn't really where I felt my life was going. So I started looking around again. Um, and was approached by a local company uh, who uh, worked in investments and property. um, And they invited me to come and work in their sales department. So I, again, kind of, you know, on a whim, just ended up floating across there. Worked for that company for a good three or four years. Um, Worked in Spain. They were opening an office in Spain. So worked in Spain for a year, helping set up a sales office there. And again, I was good at it, but it got to a stage where, I felt, hang on, this isn't working for me. Um, and my mum, who had been a teacher um, for a long time, actually, suggested to me, you know, why don't you why don't you think about teaching? Um, and I was kind of resistant to it at first. It didn't really seem, I guess, glamorous enough. It, it didn't really appeal to me. Uh, but I managed to get in contact with a couple of old teachers, spent a couple of weeks in school, and I loved it. Uh, and I moved into teaching, did my teacher training, and it was Even through the hard times, I think that's genuinely one of the best decisions I've ever made, becoming a teacher. Um, it's well, my
3: life that's interesting and thank you for sharing that story it's no interesting problem. that you said that you were uh, you didn't think um education and teaching was glamorous compared to other careers now obviously you were in marketing Ooh. um there obviously were some perks to being marketing because obviously um you get to socialize uh, go to events and things like that mm-hmm. i mean yeah. there must have been some good aspects of marketing right
1: yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it's it's a creative industry. You know, you get to. Um, my mom got a house painted for free. <laughs> for free. Um, I worked in I worked in painting and wood sales, um, or wood stain sales, and uh, we had to show off one of the products. So I managed to talk the um, the department who were doing the kind of the property and the shoots, kind of look at my mom's house, and they went and had a look at my mom's house and thought, yeah, we can use this. And so my mom got a soffits and <laughs> soffits and facials all painted for free that was a definite perk for my mum um for me yeah like I say it's creative um there was a lot of different facets to it which is actually similar to teaching you know I was doing lots of different things on a daily basis whether it was product design whether it was uh sort of helping produce copy copywriting meeting sales people um yeah it, you know In a way, it was a little bit more, I I use the word glamorous, it's probably not the best word to use, but in a way, it was a little bit more what I thought I wanted at the time. As it turns out, it wasn't.
3: And so, some of the skills that you've described there are very similar to education Mm. as well. And I mean, I've heard people say to me loads of times, and I've got to be honest, Aaron, it irritates me (laughs) when people say, "Well, essentially, teaching is just like being a salesperson." And I guess it is to some extent, but I get really offended by that (laughs) because I sit there thinking, "Well, Mm. actually, we're not just salespeople; we actually do have qualifications, and we do." have proper degrees. So, for example, I've got a computer science degree. I do have skills in that so ooh, in that ooh. section, um, and we do have to teach those skills um, right. that are needed for industry. So, when people say, "Oh, well, teachers just a sales job," it irritates me.
1: <laughs> wow. Well, okay, Sophia. So, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna bite my tongue then. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, I've, I've, done, I've done CPD comparing aspects of teaching to sales. I, you know, I worked. I, After I left that marketing company, I worked in sales for about three or four years, um, and I definitely see overlaps. I I agree that they are different and that that teaching is – I don't want to use the word more because it denigrates people who work in sales, but teaching has different facets that you do not find in sales, but there is definitely an overlap.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm going to save you here. I do think there are <laughs> <Thank> aspects. <laughs> there are aspects because obviously you are trying to persuade and you are trying to influence your students into uh, accepting what you're telling them. Uh, and you're doing it in a, in a strategic way as well whilst you're delivering your subject knowledge. Um do you think teaching is harder than other careers? Because we have this whole debate. I mean, I worked outside of the teaching profession before I came in. I did a, a year uh, working for uh, Her Majesty's Treasury, um, and that was finance, and it was quite bland, to be honest. <laughs> and um, and then I took some time out when, from my career, and when I took time out, again, I went back into a, an office job. I was working for Pearson, Possible. um do you do you think it's harder than other careers teaching because people say that they can't wait to get out it,
1: it's difficult isn't it i think i think i'd answer that question in in two ways one i think it, it depends where your skill set is and i think if you have a skill set that's you know if, if you were to ask me to start building a house i wouldn't know the first thing and or how to go about it or, or plumbing or you know being an electrician i couldn't do those jobs in a skill set sense, they are too hard for me. So it depends where your aptitude is. I do think, having said that, that teaching provides certain challenges that you will not find, you know, in in many other roles. I would also say that, yes, I pretty do on balance think it is more demanding, but I think there is a, a sense of achievement that makes the difficulty more justifiable and manageable you know I, i've you know I've put, I've put in the long hours and I've, I've done the hard work but i think that what i'm doing is worthwhile therefore i'm actually happier to do it um and i think that's okay important, and that was important for me
3: okay so leanne's messaged in and she says there's definitely transferable skills that she's taken with her from her first career right. and thinks that she would have found teaching a lot harder if she didn't have those skills so obviously um the Yeah, so the transferable skills um, have been great. Um, With response to our workload, though, Mm. surely our workload's heavier than other professions?
1: I would say that's, you know, from the jobs that I've had, I would say that is the case, yes.
3: Okay. Um, In terms of... different careers then because I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you a few questions if you could have a choice between marketing and teaching what career would you choose and why
1: well I've, I've chosen and I've chosen teaching um and I chose it because I think um my skill set is more suited to a to, to to the career that I've chosen um And I think there is a sense of reward that I get with teaching. And I'll I'll be honest, you know, even, you know, I'm an assistant principal, but the favorite part of my job is still working with with students and in being in the classroom. You know, that's that's what I love doing. Um, And you don't find that in any other profession. You know, working with teenagers or children is something that you find in education. Um, And it's my favorite part of my job
3: and so if you had to I know you enjoy teaching a lot but if you had to compare other careers um law or medicine would that appeal to you if you were able to have the skills and aptitude for those careers or would you still prefer teaching
1: that's a difficult question to answer because I don't you know I, I don't think I could ever have been a doctor like there are parts of that job that that I think are really interesting but you know in terms of the science pedigree that's not how my brain is wired i I scraped I scraped through science at GCSE um, again in terms of law I see that there are similarities between between education and law despite I might sound like a slightly bizarre thing to say but I can see that there, there probably are similarities um, but like I say you know you don't get to work with young people in those professions so I would I think I would still choose teaching
3: Okay, and let's just suppose you got to a stage in your career where teaching was no longer doing it for you. Um, would you ever consider becoming a YouTube influencer?
1: <laughs> uh, I wouldn't even know where to start. I don't. That's just beyond me. That is completely beyond me. You're the reason why I'm not particularly the... tech. Techy minded
3: <laughs> The reason why I'm asking is because obviously I discuss careers with my students a lot, right. um, and this comes up a lot. Miss, I want to be a YouTube influencer. I want to yeah. be on Instagram. I want to be a digital marketer. Mm. And they seem to think it's a lot easier, but I, I sit there watching and because I have to do this um, marketing for the radio show mm. and things like that, and I sit there thinking it's not that easy, actually. <laughs> right. It's actually quite difficult because you have to spend a lot of time uh, trying to do uh, all sorts of things to try and get people engaged um I so mean, I I, can, I guess
1: I can do that I guess being being an influencer or, or being a YouTube influencer like yeah, I, obviously you can't see me but I do have a face for radio you know I'm wearing <laughs> so I, I'm wearing a holy t-shirt I'm wearing baggy tracksuit bottoms there's nobody who wants to be influenced by me in any way shape or form so I think that's had... made for me
3: <laughs> I've had a message coming in from Leanne saying, I think after all the recorded lessons and live video teaching in lockdown, we could probably all be YouTubers now. And I think that's correct. We could probably all be YouTubers. Um, so, Aaron, let's, um, I'm not going to even ask you about the food critic because you probably would say no to that as well. Oh, I,
1: I, I, I could be a food critic. I've got, oh, really? I've, got I've, got, I've definitely
3: got that in my locker, 100%. <laughs> okay. Um, what kind of food? Like... Fine dining Uh, or just general any restaurants. I
1: I mean, I could, I could, I'm happy to eat anywhere. You know, I'm adventurous in that regard. I just, you know, I actually really like cooking. I find it quite cathartic. I enjoy the creative aspect.
3: Okay, Um, that's interesting. From
1: scratch, so
3: we've got a master chef. Con- wow. contestant on today Absolutely. <laughs> okay Aaron so let's get back to teaching then what are your thoughts on school CPD and how it's delivered right now because obviously you are engaged with that as an assistant head
1: yeah I, I just think it's you know it, I just come back to the thought you know when I'm when I'm a bit run down or I'm I've been at work and it's you know sort of six or half six I'm thinking oh do I spend an extra half an hour I just think that te- you know the most important resource in that classroom is going to be the teacher um, and having a kind of uh, a well motivated, well trained, well motivated—I say again—teacher in a classroom is probably one of the most important things that schools can have. Um, and I think that given that, that that CPD is absolutely central to that, you know, and, and making sure that we that teachers are are being given time to do it, but to choose CPD courses that are benefiting them, that are specific to their interest, where they want their career to go. Um, and, And I think it's just, it's absolutely essential in education that it is done, but it is done properly.
3: Yeah, I agree. Because um, I've worked in schools where the CPD is awful. Uh, I don't feel intellectually challenged, and I'm I'm pretty sure a lot of my um, colleagues who are around my age and possibly who've been in teaching longer than me would say the same thing that CPD is a really big issue um, in terms of you know providing that intellectual challenge and keeping you engaged, like you said, and motivated within the within your uh, within your profession. Mm. Um, Uh, I've had a comment just saying that they agree with me. um, It's hit and miss, obviously. So, yeah, CPD is hit and miss in schools. Um, What do you think can be done to improve it? Because we've got lots of experts who come in, um, you know, to deliver CPD. We can, uh, you know, schools can afford it, some of them. Um, Mm. Some schools can't because of budgets. But essentially, what could we do to make CPD uh, much better than what is being delivered in schools right now? And that's not all schools. Some schools are fantastic at CPD.
1: Absolutely. No, I absolutely take that. I think kind of in terms of general principles, I think there are two things, I think funding and time. Um, And there are two resources that schools and teachers in them are short of at the moment. And I think having time to uh, invest in it, uh, you know, as a teacher, if, if you've got Know, a certain amount of time, and you've got to mark books or, or do the extra bit of learning, you, you're going to pick what you have to do, unfortunately, which which makes choices that, that teachers are having to make. So, I think time and investment from central government, I think those are the two most important things. I think and it, the best CP, sorry, go ahead. now go ahead, Aaron. The best I CPD. I think, I mean, you know, I've I've been lucky enough that I've been able to do my MPQML. I've done my MPQSL. I did my master's degree uh, after I after I uh, finished my PGCE. I've definitely taken things from those. Um, and maybe I didn't see the benefit of, it, benefit of it at the time, but kind of retrospectively, I've, I've seen how doing those projects has helped develop me. Um, and I also think there's something to be said from sitting down and having structured conversations with, with my colleagues, actually. I think... You know, kind of when I've had conversations with colleagues in the past, sometimes it can become a bit of a, you know, I don't want to use the word rant, but it can be about kind of getting, you know, it's a stressful job. And sometimes teachers, I think possibly have a tendency to need to vent. And I, I totally understand that. And I totally get that. But I think having conversations with colleagues where you're talking about pedagogy is actually even that is actually really rewarding and it reminds you why you got into the job in the first place. I I think even that can actually have a massive benefit
3: yeah, um, I've had a couple of, uh, well, I've had someone messaging the 30 year old teacher who says that internal CPD using staff who are keen is a good way of delivering CPD. She doesn't think uh, we don't need big, uh, she doesn't think that big names are needed all the time for professional development mm, uh, courses. Yeah. Uh, and also staff need to be able to reflect and share concepts with each other by having teaching and learning groups. And um, and also uh, it needs to be engaging as wow. well and maybe having uh, smaller groups sharing a good practice. Now wow. I agree with all of that because obviously I, I've been in the profession for a long time. In some schools it's worked effectively. We used to have working parties wow. um, we used to engage in it um, and have lots of fun in there, but wow. lots of fun with it. However, that's assuming you're all at the same stage. Now, mm. I've wor- walked into some schools where it's not so good and the staff body may not be so good either because it depends on the makeup of your staff body. So whilst it's all good having in-house and internal CPD, it's not always the best way, I feel. What are your thoughts, Aaron?
1: I can, I can see that that would be the case. Um, I think there are some times when you... I agree with everything that's being said in terms of CPD needs to be engaging it you know it needs to be specific to need and it needs to be things that you can put into place in the classroom I think sometimes you know we do have that expertise in school and there shouldn't be you know any need why you need to bring external experts in having said that I think that if you pick the right person to come in and deliver the right session that can also be massively beneficial and I think it's about not having a you know one size fits all it's about being able to you know it's same in terms of principles of education you know if you're going to do intervention you don't give every kid the same activity because every student doesn't need the same area to develop and i think that what makes good cpd is actually the same thing as what makes good classroom teaching if i'm if i'm being honest
3: Yeah, and um, I've had Leanne message in saying, I think CPD should be full of practice you can put into place in a classroom, which my colleagues agree with that because they do say um, to me a lot, well, we've had CPD, but I don't really know how to use it in my subject area and it wasn't really relevant for me. Um, And sometimes SLG teams forget that. And so that's important. Uh, And the 30-year-old teachers messaged in again saying that it does need to be tailored to your uh, context that you're mm. in um and obviously we've all had the uh, cpd where you know somebody has come along and just read off the powerpoint yeah. and board which isn't engaging or inspiring at all I actually um, think
1: for a teacher it's almost unforgivable you know if, if any group of professionals are going to know how to deliver a cpd session it should be teachers right i mean it's basically the same as a lesson here's the outcome here's how we're going to get there. i mean i I think it's it's yeah I think it's almost unforgivable that teachers don't know how to deliver CPD.
3: So, you know, my <clears throat> this is going back 17 years now. And the head teacher I used to work with then, he was quite forward thinking. Um, when he delivered his CPD in his school, we were a secondary and sixth form. And it was very much tailored to the needs of the staff. So they had different activities for staff to go to different sessions. Um, and it was like regular. And it was structured in um, a very specific way, which... Um, suited the needs of everybody now when I do my training within my school right now for EdTech, I do it the same way we're Um, you kind of like you have to have CPD for the individual then you have to have it for departments and then possibly whole school and I think it's really important that you are tailoring like you said to individuals so that people feel like they're making progress within their career um, which we're going to talk about with Helen later on but it is a a, a huge knock to someone's confidence if you're constantly given CPD not enough time to improve your practice and then on top of that you don't know how it fits in with your practice either so it's not Mm. it's not good enough to have something on the board and say right this is what the theory says but then not have any practical examples of how you might use it in certain subjects
1: right yeah I completely agree and I think that I I think that's that's absolutely essential that you know I guess part of part of the role of a teacher is mediating from, a, you know, something theoretical to something practical, you know, right. A lot of what pedagogy is, is transferring a theoretical knowledge and actually implementing that in practice. And that's that's kind of what we get paid to do. So you would think that CPD is also teaching, you know, is applying that same principle, but just to the education of teachers rather than the education of students.
3: So for me, someone like me who's quite driven, um, and I do know other people who felt like this as well, if I find I walk into a school where the CPD is not good, I walk out again. Because as far as I'm concerned, I don't feel that my professional development is being invested in or being taken seriously. And if I feel like I've learned or I know more than what the school is offering me, I don't understand why I'm there then.
1: Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. That's-
3: and that ex- that would explain turnover rates as well, which makes me laugh when head teachers say, oh, my turnover is high. Well, look at your CPD provision that you're offering staff first.
1: Yeah. And I think there's also another argument. You're absolutely right. I also think there's another argument is that, you know, people aren't coming into teaching and people are leaving teaching in, in higher numbers than they should be. And there's a massive recruitment issue. I think given that it's almost even more important that, that staff CPD is, is promoted and given that high agenda, because ultimately, you know, if, if somebody comes in and there's an area that, that you know, that they need to improve, they need to be given to support to improve it because it's not an easy fix to you know, move that person on and try and recruit somebody else because there isn't somebody else out there. You know, actually, we need to work with the staff that are there. We need to make sure that we are retaining staff and that we're supporting them to develop and improve. Um, Because, you know, like I say, we we already have recruitment shortages nationally. Teachers are leaving education kind of, you know, in more numbers than they're joining. It's even more incumbent on us to make sure that our CPD is is sufficient to purpose.
3: Um, So I've had... um... I've had someone message in saying, what about giving staff time to work on their own goals? Does every second of CPD need to be front-led and accounted for? Which is a good question. Right. It's
1: a good question.
3: Do you want to answer it? That's by Freya, by the way.
1: I'll give it a (laughs) go. Yeah. Yeah, I think think, think there is, you know, that comes down to trust, doesn't it? And I think that's about what, what good leadership is. And it's about empowering your staff and trusting your staff. And when you employ somebody, you know you you have to give them that trust. I don't think I think she's absolutely. I'm assuming Freya's Sorry, I think Freya's absolutely right. I don't think it needs to be front led, and I think it should be led by what what that teacher feels they need to improve. There is a place for you know colleagues to contribute to that. Um, but no, I absolutely agree. I don't think it always needs to be front led, and I think it should be led by by staff. Given uh, that makes the assumption though that perhaps some staff want to improve. Um, and I think that's that's also important as well. We should always be wanting to improve and develop. And I think that the 30-year-old t- teachers kind of pointed that out.
3: Yeah. Um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you is, and this is a tricky one, uh, but it does happen. What if you, um, What if the person in charge of CPD is not good? at CPD. So let's just say you've got a, a, an assistant head teacher who's in charge of teaching and learning. Teaching and learning hasn't improved for many years. Um, we are lifelong learners, like the 30-year-old teacher said, but sometimes some people get lazy in their careers because they've been in a school for a very long time. What do you? How do you deal with that if your results are not going up and the person who's in charge of teaching and learning is not taking any accountability um, and the head teacher's not holding them to account as well?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a difficult question, isn't it? I think, I think in uh, there are a couple of ways to answer that question, and obviously it depends entirely on the context. Um, I think that this can come down to people being time poor, you know. And if you are trying to, you know, it, it takes time to to look at to look at CPD and ensure that CPD is sufficient to purpose. And you know, when you are perhaps juggling fifteen other things, and you know, there is a disclosure that you've got to deal with in all, all of these things that kind of pushing the CPD down the priority list that can create problems and it can lead to lower level CPD or lower quality CPD. So I think it's about making sure that people who have that responsibility are given time ring-fenced to address it and make sure that the CPD and professional development is, is cohesive and, and thought out and well delivered. But you know, and, and in the example that you've given, I also think it's about there is something to be said for looking at how other schools are doing it and having conversations with colleagues in different schools and I think that's that's one way that can can reinvigorate you you know what are other schools doing I think just having a chance to talk to colleagues people in similar situations and talk about what they're doing in a structured way can really help invigorate you and can give you ideas and can fire up your enthusiasm and I think those are two ways that you could perhaps address that that potential scenario
3: um I've just had more messages come in. Uh, Thank you for the comment about the great show. Um, And also, um, okay, this is a very interesting one. With the current academy model, you would expect trust to flag this up if CPD wasn't great, but some don't. So, it, you know obviously for for some people who are working um academies surely those people if cpd is not being delivered properly i mean if you're working in a trust you should have other schools that you can collab- collaborate with right
1: mm, right
3: so i guess that i guess the answer to that um the 30 year old teacher is if that's happening um you should be seeking cpd uh, from other schools as well uh, if possible um Aaron, hello. If you could change one thing in education, what would it be?
1: I think probably funding. I think I'd, I think I'd make make us better funded. I think I'd increase the funding. Education but don't budget. you?
3: But don't you think that we get uh, a lot of funding already, but it's just not being spent in the right areas?
1: I think if you, I, I'm not. You know, I'm not from a financial background, but I imagine if you were to look at funding and investment in funding over the past 10 years, you'd see a massive drop off. Um, So I think that would be problematic, you know, in terms of real, you know, in terms of real expenditure. Yes, maybe it's similar to what it was 10 years ago, but inflationary pressures, um, increase in scope of, of what's expected in education, you know, changing curriculums. I think all of these things put budgetary or place financial pressures on schools. Um, I don't think there is enough funding you could be right that in some models perhaps that funding isn't going where it needs to go but I think as a general rule there is not enough funding in education and I think it has dropped off
3: okay um We'll have to do another show on that to go into more detail about <laughs> where those funds are going um, and whether that's, um, whether we are actually receiving enough funding in education. So uh, we'll come back to that as another show. Um, what leadership books are you currently reading and what have you applied to your own leadership so far?
1: So I've been watching uh, Game of Thrones uh, and Succession extensively. <laughs> 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 no, I'm just joking. I haven't seen succession, so I've got no idea what I've just committed to. Um, and I have watched Game of Thrones, but that's that's not something I'm applying to my leadership. Um, I've been been doing reading about Rosenshine actually, um, so it's not specifically leadership. Um, but I think you know that there are. Yeah, I, I guess maybe maybe I've stagnated that I'm not reading about leadership, but I have been reading, working on Rosenshine's uh, principles uh, quite a lot recently, and I found those kind of helping reinforce what good education is.
3: Okay, so uh, essentially you're looking at making sure you know your subject knowledge and pedagogy, which is your leadership aspect. Um, How long did it take you to get into leadership? Because obviously I'd like to know your thoughts about diversity in leadership coming from right. a diverse background like yourself. Right. was there, Were there any struggles? Was it easy? Give it, us a bit of background.
1: It certainly wasn't easy, but I don't think it ever ever was um I I kind of took my time with my career progression and I think I have taken my time you know I was never somebody who was keen to just jump onto the next step because it was there or jump onto the next level of responsibility because it was there you know I I tried to apply for jobs you know I didn't apply for a head of year role until I felt that my teaching was strong enough that you know that that I, I was sufficiently strong in my my basic teaching skills to be able to take on responsibility. Um, I definitely found moving into leadership very, very challenging. Um, And it's, and I guess it should be. And I guess that's, that's natural as as you move up. Well, I I don't like the word up, but as you move into uh, different types of responsibility, it becomes increasingly difficult. Um, It it was a challenge. Absolutely. Um, And, you know, I've, I've got, no, I have I've, I did the MPQL. I did the MPQSL. I'd done the master's degree. Like on paper, I had done I'd done things the right way. I had a track record of success in all the roles that I'd taken on. Um, but I did find it very, very hard. Absolutely.
3: And um, one of our listeners has messaged in asking whether you could give us some quick advice for those who are trying to get into leadership.
1: I'd say practice interviews. Um you know, make sure that you are kind of drilled and you know exactly what you're going to talk about because you can have a rough idea of what the questions are going to be in advance. Make sure that you're practicing that. Um, kind of with a kind of focus on outcomes. Can you show you've got a, a track record of improving performance and just kind of being really well drilled in that regard? Um, and I guess that, that means actually having Having, you know, not just being able to talk about a track record of success, but having a track record of success. I'd say making sure that any schools you're applying for, you feel that that's a fit for you in terms of your ethos. You know, um, I've, I mean, now in my second year of being an assistant principal, and I really feel like I've, you know, come to a school that matches my, that matches me and that I'm a fit for as well. And I think that's really important. Um, yeah
3: definitely values are really really important um, right. and I would I would say that uh, if you are looking for leadership roles one of the things that you do need to think about is whether um, you know the school is right for you sometimes people jump into a leadership role just because they want the status and the title not realising that actually you're going to be there possibly you know two to five years uh, and so you should think about carefully uh, the school and the leadership team you're going to work with right. Um. What are your thoughts on Ofsted coming back into school so soon? Because we've just, we're still going through a pandemic. There are still issues are happening all over. Differences. Uh, what are your thoughts?
1: That is such a massive question. Um, <laughs> hence the big, hence the big breath. I, I, I guess part of me likes. <clears throat> Part of me thinks that the focus on inspections has changed to what the students are saying, and I actually think that's a good thing. Um, I think it takes a focus away from data. Uh, And I think they've been quite clear that the focus is less on data or is not on data. They want to know what the students and what the staff are saying about school. I think that's a good change. Um, Whether they should be coming in, so school after into school so soon after a pandemic that's, that's a decision that's made far far above my pay grade, um <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna answer that question with another extended exhale
3: okay all right that's okay that's okay we've got we've got the 30 year old teacher saying just be honest but I do understand that it is difficult maybe for you to want to answer that live on the radio so that's absolutely fine we can leave it there uh, for what it's big, worth
1: such a, such a big question I don't think it's one that's easy to answer I think it's a whole <laughs> show showing itself you know I might criticize aspects of of what they do or how they do yeah. it but I actually see you know, maybe it's because I've you know, worked without. I've never worked without Ofsted. I can't imagine how it would work without it.
3: Yeah. And you've just made a good point. It is a whole show in itself. And those of you who are listening to my show right now, if you stay tuned at 11 o'clock, my co-host Graham will also be talking about Ofsted and all of these issues related to Ofsted, um, which will be a cracking show. So I do think that you should listen into that where he can answer those questions for you, hopefully. Aaron, thank you so much for your time today. Um, you. It's been interesting talking to you. Um, what's What's next for you? Are you going to carry on climbing the career ladder?
1: Oh, I don't. Or know. Or are you I settled don't... right now? I'm, you know, I'm. I'm still learning. I'm still developing. I'm doing. I'm doing. Um, I'm doing my Senko course. Um, and I think that's kind of like an ongoing challenge. That's such a massive area. Um, yeah, to work in. And I'm, I'm enjoying that challenge. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm really happy where I am. Um, I, I've not got plans to move up. I'm not saying I wouldn't. I'm not saying I don't want to. But we'll, you know, we'll, we'll see one step at a time. There's no, there's no rush.
3: Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. And we'll see you at uh, another time, maybe.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. And uh, it's it's been great being on. Thank you so much.
3: Great. Thank you, Aaron. Right. Okay. Next up, we have Helen, but we're going to go to the news first um, and our sponsors. Uh, When we return, um, I'll just quickly go through uh, what Helen uh, is doing and take it from there.
0: Need
2: support with your phonics teaching? Did you know Oxford University Press now has three DfE validated programmes to help you? Read Write Ink Phonics, Floppies Phonics, and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use, and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. Whatever your school's phonics needs, Oxford has the solution. To find out more, and receive support from your expert local educational consultant, visit oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News.
0: In a Teachers Talk Radio News special, we focus on a report in the Guardian newspaper where two Ofsted inspectors voiced their fears for vulnerable children being educated in unregulated facilities. According to a report in the Guardian newspaper, some vulnerable children excluded from mainstream schooling are being educated in unregulated and illegal schools, some based in caravans on farmland and on industrial estates and business parks. Ofsted inspectors have reported to The Guardian in an attempt to lift the lid on a murky world. Victor Shafieh and Sue Will, who focus on unregistered and illegal schools, brought to the inspectorate's attention through referrals from a worried parent or local authority, say alternative provision for children who cannot be accommodated in mainstream education is complex and growing. For most children who are struggling in mainstream schools, there are high-quality state-funded pupil referral units and good independent alternative provision, which is registered and monitored by Ofsted, and these can offer a good short-term fix. But because of a shortage of places in this provision, there is also a growing unregistered sector, which is what concerns Ofsted. If an AP offers part-time provision, it is not required to register and so will not be inspected by Ofsted. It only becomes illegal if it is not registered and is offering full-time or almost full-time education the report considers that the landscape becomes even murkier when children who have been excluded are referred to oversubscribed pupil referral units they may then be subcontracted to an unregistered setting and it can mean that troubled and challenging children some of whom in the report states are as young as five are being sent to schools in unsuitable accommodation, with unqualified staff, and may be receiving little in the way of education. Shafi, Ofsted's Deputy Director of Unregistered and Independent Schools states, the big question for me is, what's happened out there? Have children suddenly become worse behaved? What is it that's fundamentally changed that means more children are going to APs and primary kids are increasingly going to APs? Because this area is so obscure, we just don't know. Sue Will is one of a small team of Ofsted inspectors who, since 2016, have been going out to unregistered and illegal settings across the country. I've been to settings in caravans on farmland, we've been to grubby halls, another favourite is on industrial estates. she said. We've started to identify more primary children at these settings in the last 18 months, but that's not to say they weren't there before. We're really working in the dark here. There's no regulation, there's no requirement for paperwork, it really is. The unknown. In a follow-up opinion piece by Amanda Spielman, those most likely to be harmed are being sent to places with the least oversight. It's vital all alternative provision is registered, she says. Every child, regardless of their background, deserves a good education and the chance to reach their full potential. But some children, often the most vulnerable, just don't get that chance. She goes on to state that whilst the government does not collect specific data, it seems a likely estimate, based on the Department for Education's own statistics for England, that the number of children in alternative provision has risen by 14% over the last four years to more than 45,000. And with the detrimental impact that COVID and lockdown have had on many young people, she feels that we may well see a further rise this year. In light of the increase in the data, Amanda Spielman states that she's commissioned new research to better understand the role that alternative provision plays in the education system, and to find out why primary age pupils, some as young as five, are being referred to alternative provision in the first place. She acknowledges that the scale and diversity in the sector means oversight arrangements can be complicated and that the quality of education can vary greatly. The article goes on to point out that the law says that if an AP provider operates full time, it must be registered with the Department for Education and be inspected by Ofsted. Otherwise, it is an illegal school but acknowledges that unregistered provision gets no comparable, consistent scrutiny. And for the past 10 years, the Ofsted has been calling for mandatory registration of all alternative provision, no matter how many hours they are open or how many children attend. She believes that without this, there is little assurance that their pupils are getting a good full-time education. Finally, the article goes on to acknowledge that no child deserves to be left to languish and fail that schools need consistently good alternative provision that helps re-engage these children in education. Spielman concludes with the comment that children deserve no less. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio weekend news.
3: Right, welcome back. Uh, We did have extra Long news there. (laughs) Um, Helen is an executive leadership coach with over 30 years' experience in the education sector. And sadly, she wasn't able to make the live show today. But she did have a conversation with me earlier on during the week. And what she had to say was absolutely brilliant. There were some really interesting conversations taking part. So uh, do listen carefully uh, at the conversation between me and her. Um, Lots of useful information for people who are stuck in their careers and not sure what to do next hi helen how are you
4: hello there i'm fine thank you good to be here
3: it's good to have you here can you tell us what you do what's your role and background
4: so i'm a coach Um, i focus mainly on leadership but i also do some personal and career coaching as well Um, and i've come to that after a career as a leader in education so i was a primary school head teacher for uh, just under 10 years Um, and done a lot of different things, a 27 year career in education. So um, I've got a big background in education, but now I work as a coach. I work with people across sectors.
3: Wow, 25 years is a long time. And so obviously you must have enjoyed it and had a lot of experience gained from it. Oh Um, yes,
4: absolutely.
3: Was it easy to transition into coaching?
4: Um, easy i'm not sure i would say that it was easy um i think coaching is is a is a really interesting profession but it's one where you've really got to dig deep and um learn more about yourself and learn lots about how you interact with other people and relationships and yeah it's it's been a it's been a learning curve for sure, uh, but I really I've really enjoyed it. I wanted to learn, and and I've enjoyed learning.
3: I asked you to come onto this show, Helen. Um, I've had a lot of colleagues come to me, uh, in the past and uh, in the present, right now. Um, mostly female, but it does happen to some uh, men occasionally as well. Um, they're complaining that they've been stuck in the same job for a very very long time, and they're finding it difficult to move on and to progress to other roles Um, can you just explain for our listeners um, there's this term that we use which is dead end what is a dead end job
4: well I would say a dead end job would be a job where you've maybe really not got many sort of prospects for growth and development Um, yeah you're kind of stuck that's what I would have said a dead end job would be
3: and for somebody personally and professionally what's wrong with working in a dead-end job
4: well I think it depends on the person and it depends on how you feel about your job because um that feeling of being stuck that that's a personal feeling um some people of course are quite happy in a job um that just gives them stability and gives them an income um, but if you're looking for growth and development development and i would say most people are then obviously you're not going to get satisfaction in a job that doesn't give you those things so i would say that if you're in a job that isn't giving you satisfaction, then you're best to make some changes. I
3: think it happens a lot in teaching because obviously there's this uh, thing where teachers either stay in the classroom or they're you know, encouraged to progress up a career ladder. And for some teachers, they don't wanna progress up the career ladder. So as you're... as you're teaching and you're becoming more refined in your teaching there's not much more that you can do apart from develop your teaching Uh, isn't this something that the profession needs to think about in order to ensure that we're not losing our good quality teachers to other professions because you know I've been teaching for about 17 years and sometimes it does get a bit boring if you're constantly in the classroom and there's nothing more to do other than teaching and learning
4: yeah I think I think it's interesting um, for teachers what I would say is that really you're never stuck as a teacher you're not really in a dead-end job if you're a teacher because you've got a professional qualification that will you know can take you anywhere um, in in the education sector um, and there's a lot of options within education it's not just you know you can go within schools but then you've got the fe sector as well you know if you're in secondary could you go to the primary sector there's special education and there are so many different types of job as a teacher, and then you've got classroom teachers, you've got teachers outside of the classroom, um, and then of course you've got all the different subject specialisms as well. You've also got teacher training, um, so I think there's an there are actually a lot of there are a lot of possibilities for teachers, and also even if you've come to the point where you really feel that teaching is not for you anymore. You've got a load of transferable skills that you've gained in your teaching career. So, you know, your organizational skills, your thinking skills, problem solving relationships, and um, you've got a lot of transferable skills there that you can take with you into a different role. So I would say that really for teachers. Um, I think that you can't really be truly in a dead end job as a teacher because there's a lot of different options, but I think sometimes people feel a bit pigeonholed. And they feel a little bit stuck and they perhaps need to you know, look out and see the different possibilities that that are out there for them um, in the in the education world.
3: Do you find a lot of people come to you for support with that? I mean, have you encountered people who've been in similar situations where they've been teaching for X amount of years um, and they're not burnt out? They're just really disillusioned and they've come to the end of the road where they actually fundamentally believe there's no progression or there's no growth for them.
4: Yeah, I think that I'm sensing at the moment there's a great deal of exhaustion in the teaching pre- profession and a lot of people are feeling very weary and that's leading them to sort of feel quite negatively about um about their life as a teacher and and I think it's very worrying actually that we've got we've got such large numbers of people who are feeling that way at the moment um but but I would really encourage people to try and get a fresh perspective on things because there are a lot of possibilities and there's a lot of things that you can do even without changing your job. So I think that you know that there's hope out there and, and I think that people have got to do what's right for them um, and they've got to search inside themselves and think about how they feel and what's making them feel that way. Um, but I think that I, I would say that be hopeful and you know look positively and see what you can find for you.
3: Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. I would say that uh, it is something that's personal to every person because obviously not everyone's going to have the same goals or not everyone's going to feel the same feelings and different it depends on the context you're in and things like that um one of the things that has been concerning recently is the amount of ects who are struggling and how they're talking about leaving after just you know a half a term since september and that is kind of worrying because then you look at them and they haven't had much you know um much time within the profession um and then you you sit there wondering why are so many of them leaving, uh, you know, after such a short amount of time and that does not come down to the lack of growth or, you know, because they are learning. So clearly there's some issue within our profession that is putting people off.
4: Yeah absolutely I really feel for um people who are coming into this into the profession at this point because you know after kind of two years of pandemic almost um it's not, It's not the way that it's always been, it's different now and it's so pressured and the pressures are coming in many shapes and forms and I just really feel for people who are just starting out now trying to find their way and I know that leaders who would normally be given loads of support to um, ECTs Um, Maybe they're so stretched at the moment as well that they're not able to give the quality of support that, that those people really need right now
3: yeah um yeah that's true they're not getting the level of support that they need and also like you said they've come in at a, a time where you know we are coming towards the end of the pandemic hopefully but at the same time it is quite stressful because obviously ofsted have started to go back into schools uh and so people are struggling with all of those pressures that we we do have um if we go back to you know normal qualified teachers who've been in the profession for a long time and they do feel like they are stuck in this job um can you tell us some of the signs where people do feel like it's a dead end what are the signs for that
4: okay um well I think those signs are they're really inside of yourself and I think you've got to ask yourself how you're feeling about your job Um, You know, what are the feelings that you've got on a day to day basis, because that's going to, that's going to give you an indication of whether you're at that point where you need to make a change or not, you know, um, and you can take into account the context that you're in and and obviously the fact that we're in pandemic situation still, um, and take all that into account, but if you're feeling really bad about going to work in the morning, then you need to do something about that, um, and, and I think that's key.
3: Yeah, I mean, um, there. I remember in the past, there was one school that I worked in a very long time ago now, where I knew straight away that I had finished at the school, (laughs) like Mm -hmm. mentally I had checked out. Um, And I think people know genuinely, um, you know, like you said, when they're feeling, they know exactly what the signs are that yeah, it's time to leave and it's time to move. I think some some of the things that other people have said to me, uh, other colleagues who've been in the profession for a long time as well, is that there's no clear path for promotion. So sometimes if they can't see a future uh, within an organization that to them feels like they're stagnant and they're not growing, and that could be, um, you know, disillusionment for cause disillusionment for them. Um, and even if there was a promotion in an organisation, they probably wouldn't want to go for it because of the people that they're surrounded with uh, and or the role that's that's there. Um, sometimes um, I've heard people say to me that um, they're working in a school. And the leadership team or the head teacher doesn't really invest in them, but he's happy or she's happy to bring in people externally, you know, to replace the roles or, you know, to bring in new people for fresh ideas and and things like that. And that kind of makes people feel a bit bad as well, because obviously if you've been there, if you've been in a school, uh, let's just say you've been in school for 10 years and you've been waiting your turn for promotion, you've been working hard day in, day out and you've been making moves towards it. um, And maybe it's not been, maybe in that 10 year process you've had different roles, but you've now got to the stage where you're ready for a big massive promotion, like an assistant head or a deputy head head then it kind of takes them because obviously you've been waiting for a long time and then you know the school decide that they want an external candidate um hmm. so that could be uh, something that causes a problem doing the same things every day Um, So you become a bit like a machine or a robot. You're not actually doing anything that is uh, substantial of quality. Um, I remember uh, I was on my leadership coach with uh, one of my leaders and she was saying that somebody said that um, she'd been in the profession for, I think, 25 years and that... um, one of the things that her leadership was doing was sending her on safeguarding training. So if you've been in the profession for 25, 25 years, you need a bit more professional development than just safeguarding training. Um, so that that I think for leaders is very, very important that you need to think about very carefully, the kind of CPD and profession, professional growth and development that you're giving to people, because that is going to make uh, an issue on whether your company is productive or not. Um, and sometimes a company itself based on leadership can be stagnant itself. If the leadership isn't very good, then that could put a strain on the middle leadership team uh, and other teaching staff as well. Uh, and sometimes you just hate your job. <laughs> you know, that's that's just normal life. So all of these things I've had people tell me over x amount of years um, which is partly why i did this podcast if you are in one of those situations how could staff get out of that type of job what could they do to either progress themselves or free themselves from boredom or get themselves out of the rut that they've got stuck in
4: okay well i think that it depends on how bad it is and some of those situations that you've mentioned there I would describe as sort of examples of a kind of toxic culture and we sometimes describe cultures as toxic but if you're feeling that in the job that you're in you're not respected and you're not made to feel welcome then i think that you're quite possibly in a toxic culture and if you're feeling that way then you've really got to leave um, you, that's not for you that's not going to be a role where you're going to grow and develop um and so you need to really be thinking about what your options are and looking to leave and you know how how quickly you do that will depend on how bad it is but if it's really bad like i would say hand your resignation in and you know get out the door um but obviously there's there's grades of this and shades of it um and if it's not too bad then you might be thinking about you know I'm going to look around I'm going to see for the see what opportunities there are around that I could apply for um and thinking thinking about what direction you're going to go in whether you're going to change direction or look for a promotion you know there's a lot of different options aren't there so i would say depending on how bad it is you're going to really be thinking about the timing of making a change but ultimately if you're not happy in your job make a change
3: so like if we if we think about somebody who came to you because obviously you're a leadership coach yeah um how would you deal with those people who are just stuck in a rut for example
4: yeah so if i was coaching somebody who felt like they were stuck I would want them to do some thinking about what really matters most to them. So go right back to basics and look at the whole their whole life view effectively, and. Um, I would do this it's based on an activity um, from a book called designing your work life which I would really recommend to people who are in this situation that we're talking about it's um, it's by uh, Burnett and Evans and it's got some really great activities in there that you can use to sort of figure out what you really want. Out of your job and out of your life, and um, one of the activities is called the Maker Mix. And so, basically, what you do is it, when it, you think of a mixing board, a sound mixing board with like three sliders. So one is money, one is impact—how much you want to change the world, kind of thing—and the third one is expression, so creativity. So you think for yourself what's your ideal in your life when you go to work. Are you there for the money? Are you there to make a difference or are you there to express yourself and be creative? And to what degree do all of those kind of work in your life? So you go back and you really think about that and think about what your ideal is. And then look at your current job and compare the two and think, well, actually, what is it that I'm missing here? You know, do I want to be making more of an impact? And as a teacher, you know, there's lots of ways that you could do that. Do you want to um, maybe work with more with children with learning difficulties, or do you want to go and work with students in more disadvantaged areas? You know, you can once you know what it is that you want, you can start to make decisions around your job and your career, which really fit with that. And, and looking at your values as well, I think is another really good one what what is it that you value most in your life. And thinking about your life outside of work as well. You know, how where does work fit into your life? Because sometimes we can be so driven and we're going, yeah, I, w- I want to do this, 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 and this. And then, you you know, you've got a young family or you've just got married or you've got old uh, people in your family that you're taking care of. You know, where, do they, where does that fit in? Let's think about realistic choices that we can make that are going to work, for us individually in terms of what we want from life and what we want from work. Thank you for that, Helen.
2: Need support with your phonics teaching? Did you know Oxford University Press now has three DfE-validated programmes to help you? Read Write Inc. Phonics, Floppies Phonics, and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds.
3: in terms of i mean have you ever had people where you've coached them where they didn't know how they felt inside so for example when you're talking about what are your values what things are important to you you know when you're you get to a situation in life where you're constantly busy and you're constantly working and you haven't had that time to actually think about yourself in a very long time um you kind of forget what kind of things you like what kind of things you dislike Mm -hmm. have you ever had people in those situations where they don't actually know what they're looking for and what kind of things make them tick so to speak
4: absolutely and i would say number one myself Um, i've been in that situation where i was so busy and i just busy 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 every day um and not really stopping to think hang on a minute Is this what I want? Is this the way I want my life to be going? And I think it's so important if you recognize that about yourself, if you're finding it hard to say, how do I feel right now? That's a bit of a danger sign. That's a sign that you've actually got to make some more space for yourself in your life to be able to reflect, to be able to take stock of what's going on and to think actually, what do I value most here? And if you're struggling with finding out what your values are, just think back over the last few days and situations that made you angry. I mean, you can't ignore anger, can you? (laughs) (laughs) You you can identify anger. What things make you angry? (laughs) Because anger is usually a sign that something you value has been challenged. So you can just look back, just reflect, think about things that have happened to you and what that tells you about your values and what's most important to you.
3: Okay, that's a good breakdown. Yeah, I can, I can see that. And also, I like the bit where you've said, um, you know, have that space and more time to think about what it is that you're feeling because I obviously loads of people are journaling now and I I am a journaler, I have been journaling for a long time. But when you're busy, 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 sometimes you do forget to do that. And um, I really do like the idea of um, taking some time out uh, and listening to what your insides are saying because it is so, so important. Um, Absolutely. In terms of people who are just bored because it could be that they they don't dislike the organization they're in or the people that they're with it could just be that they seriously find the work that they're doing really boring or the role's no longer suitable for them because they've outgrown it how how do people cope with that how should they be coping with that
4: yeah well i think boredom is an interesting feeling isn't it because again boredom is telling you that you value learning and challenge and so if you value learning and challenge you need to look for those things and so the first thing to ask yourself is really could i get more of that in the job that i'm currently in is there are there some possibilities there so are there some things that i could learn more about as part of this job? Could I shadow somebody whose job I re- I'm i really interested in? Or could I ask to do a course? Or could I take on a different responsibility? Um, those are things that you might need to get somebody's help with. You might need to get permission to do. But I would say, you know, make a little list of things that are possibilities for you in your current job, um, where you could just open up your horizons a little bit
3: that's really good advice. So, yeah, I would agree. Um, and also like, if you have got to a stage, I think it's really important uh, when I'm looking at younger teachers or teachers who are at that stage, uh, colleagues who I've worked with. Um, if you have got to that stage, then do think about alternative careers as well. There's no, you know, there's nothing that says that you have to stay in teaching. Like Helen said earlier, there is, there are numerous roles in education that you can work in. It doesn't have to necessarily be within the classroom. If you're ready to leave the classroom, then it is perfectly fine. And acceptable to do that as well.
0: Um, I think that's really
4: important to say that actually. Um, because I, I I felt quite bad leaving education. You know, you just kind of think you feel a little bit guilty walking out on schools because it's a very vocational job. And I think when you're in it for a long time, you kind of get that sense of commitment to the to the children and young people. And um and then it makes it hard to leave but we have to make it okay for people because we've got so many people who are exhausted right now and we've got to be able to say to them look if your time's up as a teacher that's fine it's okay do what's right for you Um, i think we've got to make it okay for people to leave if they need to
3: yeah I mean I agree with that because I again this is um towards earlier in my career um there was a time when I needed time out and I did take that time out because I always did say to myself uh, and it wasn't anybody who said it to me I didn't have any mentors who said it to me I just in myself I said to myself if I ever get to a stage where I'm feeling I'm not delivering the best for my students then I'm not doing a good enough job then that's Absolutely. my Cue to leave because i don't feel like i'm living up to the standards because at the end of the day we are we are affecting young people's life chances and so and so i did i did go through that when i was much younger where i did feel that if i ever did get to the stage where i didn't feel like i was contributing very much then i would leave and i did actually leave at that point um -hmm. But then I did come back because like you say, you've got that teacher thing in you and I, you're totally right. There is this big, massive teacher guilt because I mean, I work really long hours. So right now I'm doing, because obviously it's often manic. Um, I'm doing five o'clock in the morning. I'm waking up and I'm literally finishing late at, in the evenings as well. Oh, goodness And me. yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's not a very good lifestyle at the moment, but I'm getting through it because obviously I have a passion for education and that's keeping me motivated and engaged because if I didn't have a passion I wouldn't be able to handle that work lifestyle um, because there is no work-life balance at the moment Um, but what what is really important is what you just said about teacher Gill um It's very hard for teachers who've been teaching for a long time to switch off from the profession. I Mm. mean, even when I leave work, um, obviously I've got loads of activities that everybody knows that I'm engaged with outside of school. I'm always thinking about education. I'm always reading about education. It's a habit that's ingrained because, like you said, there are some people who really enjoy learning and we are lifelong learners and educators are those kind of people who enjoyed learning in my opinion so you know it is um it is a tricky one and that guilt is really really horrible because i have had that guilt in the past as well um and if you are feeling that guilt i think it is just a good thing to just reach out to someone and just talk to someone about it rather than keep keep your feelings to yourself yeah um what can leadership do to support these colleagues because clearly when you're in a workplace and you're in an organization nobody's going to go up to a senior leader and say to them i'm really bored in my job or i'm stuck in a rut or I really hate working here. uh, How can leadership identify the signs? And what could they do to essentially coach them in a sense that you're not just motivating them to get the best out of them, but you're actually thinking about them as a whole person? And, you know, deal with them in that way, rather than developing them for your school, but you're actually looking at them from a human aspect, if you see what I mean?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Well, to me, that's good leadership is spending time talking to individual members of staff so that you know how they're doing and what their hopes and aspirations are and how they're feeling about their job. Um, That's good leadership. Now, it doesn't always happen that way. I know people are busy and and it makes those conversations difficult to have. But the thing is, you've got line management systems, haven't you? So it doesn't have to be the head that does all those conversations, but people who are line managers, they should be having regular one-to-one conversations with staff, even if they're informal ones, but they need to be having regular conversations so that they know how people feel about their job um, week by week, um, month by month Um and they know what they are aspiring to and what they're hoping for and you know obviously you have that in the appraisal meeting which should be an opportunity for you to talk about that but it should be ongoing through the year as well that's what leaders need to do
3: Yeah, agree. You definitely need to uh, talk to staff and it's amazing, like you said, the leadership uh, is different in every school that I've worked in, for example, Um, and I can really see the difference between quality leaders and leaders who are just there just to tick box things uh, and just to move on through the process of appraisal uh, and things like that. Um, I've always felt that the leaders who, like you said, take time to try and understand you and spend time with you and find out more about you. you know that kind of builds relationships and I think relationships are really important um, and a big part of feeling as part of something bigger. Um, I, I know that there have been um, been some members of staff who've told me that they've worked in schools where they felt isolated and on their own because they didn't have those friendships within schools. They just stay in their classrooms, they work with the kids, then they go home. And that can be a factor that causes this, you know, this feeling of disillusionment and being stuck in a dead-end job as well.
4: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, school's are community, isn't it? And you've got the relationships are so important. And as leaders, that's what that's our bread and butter that's what we need to be focusing on the most is the relationships in the organization
3: Now, there are some people who are extra confident and they say things like, well, you're not a tree, you can move anytime you want. And, you know, if you don't like it somewhere, just move. But sometimes it's not that easy, Helen, as you know, because we've both been in the profession for a long time. I've got loads of colleagues who've applied for numerous jobs um, and they have been for promotions and they haven't had any success. They either don't make the shortlist or they're unable to pass through the interview stage. And that causes disillusionment. How can these people keep going after lots of disappointments and setbacks to a profession that they're committed to, but are still not making any moves forward?
4: yeah yeah that's a really difficult one Um, you know we've all been there where we've been put where we've put applications in and, and you just feel like you're not getting anywhere <clears throat> and um what i would say a couple of practical things so first thing is if you're putting in applications and it's not going very well have you had anybody read through your applications people that you trust you know get different people to read it and give you perspectives and feedback on it say if you've been for an interview ask for the feedback but i would be i would be cautious about that because we all know that sometimes you go for a job and you just get a feeling when you're there that um that job's kind of been lined up for somebody else so you need to just be smart about the feedback that you get after an interview and think is this Is this constructive feedback or am I getting a a bit of a story here, so just be smart about that. But I always think that constructive feedback is a gift, so you need to reflect on it and you need to do something about it, Um, and if you keep working on things, then you will get there in the end. Um, And the thing is, when you're in the middle of a job search like that it's really hard to come back into your day job that you're doing now and keep going, as you say, um, after those setbacks. But it's so important that you stay present in your current job and keep evaluating your current job and keep looking for opportunities within the job to make it better and to make it work for you better. Try new things out, talk to leaders, say, can I do this, can I do that? So get the max out of your current job while you're doing those applications because you've got to wake up in the morning and think I want to be there for the children and young people I'm working with and I want to give my best every day because what's going to happen if you don't do that is you're not going to you're not going to be successful in any job application you've got to keep doing your day to day job to the best of your ability for the people you work with and um and just hang in there keep trying take the feedback and and keep moving forwards
3: and would it ever be worth moving making a lateral move and moving sideways like just suppose that somebody is really ambitious and they're stuck in a school where there is no growth on um, cpd is not fantastic because we know that happens in schools um they don't like the staff it could be anything a number of reasons is it worth moving laterally and going for other roles where they can progress take an extra longer couple of years rather than going straight up i mean how does i would say
4: anything? so Definitely, I think that um, every change of job that you make is a massive professional development opportunity, because you're working with different people. You're going to learn from new people around you, a new environment. You learn from that environment, um, and different groups of, of students and young people as well. You're going to learn, even if you've not gone up the ladder in terms of a promotion. It's going to be a great learning opportunity for you just changing roles so think of it in that kind of positive way so if you think that in your current role it's not giving you the growth and development that you want i would say a lateral move can be really helpful to you thank
3: you for that and then um I'm asking a lot of questions because I've I've, I've, I've witnessed a lot of things and I've, I've met a lot of people and I, I do talk to a lot of people. Um, yeah. One of the things that I, I did supply teaching um, for a while, and this was a good few years now. Um, one of the things that I did see were people who had mentally checked out of a job so people who are on the job who are working on a daily basis how can staff motivate themselves if they know that they've mentally checked out basically
4: yeah i think this is a really really good point and i think that you know i'm sensing that there's a lot of this around at the moment i think that one of the things that you can do one of the things that it's really worth doing is reminding yourself of why you got into the teaching profession in the first place get back to your reason why because that's that's really important what is it that you love about teaching and if you've lost that if that's gone then try and figure out a way that you can get it back um because that's that's going to drive you and help you to get up in the morning and feel good about what you're doing um and think about what you're grateful for about this job. You know what? What are the positives about it? Because there are there are bound to be some. Um, so so you know, try and focus in on that. Um, I think sometimes people can lose their self belief a little bit as well. Um, and and one of the things that I advise clients to do sometimes is to um, do a bit of a greatest hits list to build your self-belief and confidence. So make a list of 10 things, 10 achievements that you're really, really proud of, things that you've done in your life. Doesn't have to be just at work, but make a list of 10 things, your greatest hits, and really enjoy yourself making that list and look at it and remind yourself of the wonderful things that you can do and have done Um, and be proud of yourself because, you know, you, you've achieved a lot. Um, and it's amazing, you know, how how many things we forget that we've actually done and we've got to keep those things in, in mind.
3: Yeah, um, you know, some leadership teams are very good at praising people and making sure that they're appreciating their staff and some aren't as we know within the yeah. profession. And so just like students, Uh, staff need that as well from their leaders. And I think that's really important for leaders to understand that you should be doing that on a regular basis, um, because that's what keeps staff engaged and and motivated um, as well. In terms of, let's just say you're in an organisation and The whole organizations like that because of the way that the leadership team has been operating. So they're all disillusioned because they know that this is the status quo. This is what happens here. It's very hard for new leaders who are coming in into that environment. How can those leaders manage these people after they've been stagnant and they've been stuck for a long time? How can we um, break down those barriers that may be existing between the old leadership team and obviously the new people that, uh, uh, obviously the the team that's working with them? How could we do that?
4: yeah it's really hard and I, it's a problem that i've come across you know many times before um, one of the things that i think is really important about leadership is emotional agility Um i'm gonna just put a little plug in here for a, a webinar that i'm doing i, I did it a, a few weeks ago and i'm doing another one soon being a coaching leader um, and i've sort of unpicked for for me the five behaviours of a coaching leader and one of them is about emotional agility. Um, and I am really, really passionate about this because if you start, you know, it doesn't matter what's come before, you can come in there and be a great leader. And it'll, it may take time for people to begin to trust you and to begin to feel safe and secure. Um, to take risks and make mistakes and so on it takes time to build that but what you've really got to do is, is be emotionally agile with people and so that means um, listening to people and validating how they feel and if you're dealing with a situation like that you're going to have people who've probably got quite a lot of baggage and they'll they'll need to talk to you they'll need to get that off the chest they'll need to know that you're there to listen and they'll need to know that you accept their emotions as valid. Um, And and I think doing that, being a, a listening ear, being compassionate to people, that will build a culture of trust where you can then start to really move on and help people to grow and develop. But but there's always a stage when you've had a bit of a toxic environment, there's a stage of healing that has to come after that. Um, and and it's, the onus is on leaders to to make space for it really and, and allow it to happen.
3: So in terms of listening, I mean, one of the things that I've always felt um, i mean i've always felt that listening is important as well and sometimes you get the impression that leaders are not really listening so it's not active listening what they're doing is just yeah 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 yeah. tick box tick box tick box yeah you can see it it's quite evident um and then i i mean me personally i found that those leaders who weren't invested and engaged with me i didn't feel anything towards them either because i felt Mm. that you didn't understand me as a person you've not asked me how i'm feeling you've not asked me about what my career goals are like you said um essentially we're just meeting you know once a week uh, and that's it there's no other relationship um when it comes to talent development active listening is really really important Uh, you know a member of staff can tell straight away whether you're genuine whether you're authentic or not Mm. and i'm a bit surprised that we still in this day and age within the education profession have leaders where we're supposed to be educators we listen to children we listen to our students regularly but we can't afford the same compassion to our staff, it seems a bit strange to me that there isn't that emphasis and that focus when it comes to managing our staff and you know, managing talent.
4: Mm, absolutely, I think it's so important. Um, I would say in terms of talent as well, because talents are really, um, it's a word with a lot of different sort of connotations to it and I think in terms of managing talent One of the things that leaders have got to make sure that they're being is equitable um, and not making judgments on people and not making assumptions about people, because, um, you know, I really believe strongly in a growth mindset. And I think you've got to give everyone the chance to grow, you just don't know what what the future holds, and people can really surprise you if you give them the chance, you know. you know, maybe the previous leadership have really um, put somebody down, and, and this happens. You know, that you'll take over as a leader, and they'll say, "Oh, you know, that person there, they're not, they're, no they're, they're not good. Then they're not going to do anything in this in this role." Um, don't believe that. Give everybody the chance and see what happens. Because when you give people space and um, time to grow and develop you can be surprised. One of the books that I really love is Radical Candor by Kim Scott. I uh, don't know if you've come across that one before, but it's I've really, heard, really yeah, good. Yeah. I've heard of it. Yeah, one of the things she says is you need rock stars as well as superstars. And so so what she means is like the people who are solid and steady as well as the really sort of talented people who are going to fly and you know be superstars of the future sort of thing I and mean, i think that's so important is that you've got to value everybody equally and make sure everybody's getting the chance to grow
3: yeah um that's a really good point yeah I agree Um, you never know because obviously like you said it depends on the experiences that every individual's had and I also think that context is important as well because one of the things that I've realized in my own career is that you could be really good and outstanding in one school and then go to a different school Mm -hmm. with a different context and be not as good as you were previously and so it does make a difference in terms of um, the Leadership team that you're working with, the people, the students, everything matters, uh, and that makes a in- impact on on your career, um, so to speak. Yeah. Um, right, I'm going to stop there because we're running out of time, and I will continue with um, aspects of Helen's interview in the next show because uh, she said a lot of uh, good things, which I do think we need to have a follow. So that's it for today. Next up, we've got Graham talking about Ofsted. It's going to be a good show. I'm going to be tuning in because uh, I am going through an Ofsted inspection. Uh, I'm preparing for it right now, which um, I don't agree with. I shouldn't be preparing for it. There should be good quality teaching and learning going on all the time. Uh, Then we've got Khalil discussing pastoral issues uh, with some guests today. We've also got Dr. Harin, who's discussing education in Africa and we also have Adam Boxer for The Late Show making his debut today so um, it's been great being on Teachers Talk Radio this morning Um, and thanks to both my guests for coming on today thank you very much for listening in and I will see you all in two weeks time.
0: You've
2: been listening to Teachers Talk Radio